Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is where we left off last week. We're going to pick back up in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones you can find in the rack in front of you. You can keep that Bible if you don't own a Bible. Let that be our gift to you, and you can find the page numbers for James chapter 2 if you're not familiar with where it is on the screen. As you're finding James chapter 2, let me remind you that this week, we're starting this Wednesday, we're starting a new series in our midweek teaching series, and we're doing a series on what the Bible says about uh, some particular controversial topics. And so this Wednesday night, January 22nd, uh, I'm going to be teaching on what the Bible says about miracles and should we pray for them. And in particular, what does Jesus mean in several places in the gospel where he says that greater works will we do, his followers, disciples, greater works will we do than, than he has done. So what does he mean by that? And then you can see the other issues that we'll handle over this six week Uh, time that I'll be teaching women in ministry, should women preach or be pastors, baptism, who should be baptized and at what age, Uh, politics, how should Christians engage and vote, marijuana, is it okay to use if it's legalized, and I think that's probably an inevitability, not that we should use marijuana, but that it it is going to be legalized, don't misunderstand me there, and homosexuality and gender, can a person be gay or transgender and a Christian. So these are difficult topics that our our culture's thinking about, uh, people in the church are thinking about, and we're going to teach on them over the next six weeks. We have dinner at 5.30, I think, and then um, we gather in the sanctuary for a time of teaching that starts at 6.30. We realize that's a school night, so we'll be done by 7.30. So I hope you can join us for that. And if you're not able to, we will have all of those posted um, on on the internet, on our website, the audio and the video, Lord willing. Well, we come now to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and in just a moment we're going to read through it and pray. But before we do that, let me pray that God would, would help us understand this, this passage that is, is a challenging passage, one of the more uh, discussed passages in the whole New Testament. And let me pray for our time in the Word, and let me pray for us just as a church and us as a nation on this holiday weekend that we celebrate and set aside and think about civil rights and racial reconciliation. I want, I want to pray for us along those lines as a church. So let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father, thank you for the, the grace of this day that you've made, that you have given to us as a day for us to redeem and to not waste, but to glorify you in Thank you for this church. Thank you for everyone gathered here today. There's, there's no other day like today. It's, there will never be another January 19th where we're gathered in this room together with this passage in this setting. Father, I thank you for the truths of the gospel that we see. In particular, I'm thinking of in Ephesians 2 that just so clearly tells us that the good news of the gospel is that sinners have been reconciled to a holy God through the work of your son, Jesus. As Springer so clearly prayed for us earlier, that is the gospel and nothing more and nothing less. And then the second half of Ephesians 2 tells us that as a consequence of the gospel, you have made Jews and Gentiles 
people that were hostile to one another, you have made them one new man in Christ. So as a consequence of our reconciliation to you, we have been made part of a family. We're reconciled to one another. Thank you for the consequence of the gospel, which is the reconciliation of peoples that were at odds with one another. Lord, may this church be marked by a heart for all peoples. Not just peoples that are, in a sense, easier to love because they're in a foreign country and we visit them maybe a few weeks a year or we pray for them on a screen, but that this church would also be marked by a love for peoples that are different from us, even in our own city, in our own neighborhoods, that we would love our neighbors just as much as we love the nations. To love the nations and not love our neighbors is to not really love the nations. It's to love our own desire to feel like we're obeying you when we're not. So help us with this, Lord. May we be marked by a gospel-fueled love for all peoples. May this church be marked by a gospel-saturated love that cares for all peoples. May we be a a kind of prophetic voice in our culture. We know that our culture wants to pull on us, wants to divide us and separate us. Give us the wisdom and the discernment to resist that. And even when we may disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ about important issues, may we never lose empathy for one another. May we understand one another's context and settings and backgrounds and perspectives, even if we disagree with them. Because those things will pass away. Politics will pass away. Political positions on all sorts of issues will pass away. But the kingdom of God will remain forever. And those whom you have reconciled to yourself, we will be with you together as one new man, one family, forever and ever and ever. As we think about temporal things, may, our, may you lock our hearts to eternal things, and may that be the loudest note that's played in our community, in this church. And Lord, may you make us a place that longs for the day, the vision that we see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 5, that there's coming a time when every All the redeemed from every nation and tribe and tongue and culture will come around the throne and worship the Lamb. Lord, give us a a kind of earthly deposit of that here in this church. And I pray that you do these things for your glory and our grace, our good, and for the salvation of all those that you've called to yourself. Now as we look at this text, change us, Lord. Make this more than a theological exercise, but move us. Move us, change us, make us more like Jesus. That's what we need. We need need to not just understand a text better. We need the text to transform us. And for my friends in this room that don't know Jesus, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would do it only what you can do and that you would take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. 
And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to James 2, verses 14 through 26. This text has been a source of of a good bit of theological debate over the years. What is James saying in this passage? And is what he's saying a contradiction to what other parts of the Bible say, most notably Paul? Well, let's roll up our sleeves and and try and find out what he is saying. So before we read through and dwell on this passage, to help us frame, to help us approach this text and understand it, I want to frame our approach to this text with three questions and seek to answer those three questions. So I'm going to give them to you up front. What are the three questions? One, what is James saying? What's his point in this passage, in the second half of James? Two, does James contradict Paul? Meaning what Paul has said in other places, most notably Romans and Galatians, where he's talking about how we're justified by faith alone and not by works. Is what Paul, is what Paul has said in Romans and Galatians and other parts Does it contradict what James is going to say that we'll we'll work through in a moment? And then thirdly, how does this apply to our daily lives? What what impact should this have on this? How how should this affect us? All right, question number one, what is James saying? So let's let's look at the text. Now, I want you to understand just kind of the flow, our our, our work through these verses 14 through 26. We're, We're going to answer this question, hopefully, what is James saying? I think it's kind of clear and simple. And there's a logical flow to this passage. He makes a point, which he repeats like four times, which I really appreciate. James, like any good preacher, repeats himself often. And then he gives an illustration of his point. And then he, he brings up a, an objection, a possible objection to what he's saying. And then he refutes the objection and shows how it is wrong. So what is James saying? Verse 14, let's, let's read. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So before we think about this, this, this verse, we need to, I want to make sure that we all understand what James means when he says works. What does he mean by this word works? Well, I think clearly in context, he's talking about, it's a large category, really any action, the actions of a person that is considering themselves and calling themselves a Christian, the actions of that person done in response to an obedience to God. So it's basically just obedience to what God says our lives should look like. And James is saying, what good is it if you say that you have faith, but there's nothing, there's no tangible action, there's no response in your life that seems to be a result of the faith that you say you have. And he, he asks this rhetorical question that clearly the answer to it is no. He says, can that faith, can that type of actionless, workless faith, can it actually save a person? And he says no. So I think James is point here, and he's going to repeat this, and he's going to give us an illustration and an objection and answer that objection. He's saying that the type of faith that does not produce some measure of obedience, not perfect obedience, of course, because we know that we will still struggle with sin until that day when we meet the Lord face to face. He's saying that the type of faith that does not produce some measure of obedience to God 
cannot be considered genuine or saving faith. So then, to illustrate his point, he gives us a picture here in verses 15 and 16. And what he's saying in verses 15 and 16 is very similar. It's kind of on the heels of the first half of this chapter where he's talking about the relationship between the rich and the poor and how the rich should not overlook the poor or the person in the church should not prefer the rich over the poor. He says in verse 15 and 16, this illustration, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So again, clearly he's continuing this theme of actually doing what you say you believe. And this is, this is one of the central themes in James that keeps coming up and up again and again, this relationship between the rich and the poor and, and whether or not we actually do what we say. And so he's clearly, he's concerned with how people in the church treat one another. And he's using that as a kind of example of true and authentic faith. But, there, but there, I think there's actually more, if we think about it, there's more going on here than just ethics between two people. He, I think he's really getting at uh, what ultimately is evangelism. It's the purpose of the church, the, the glory of God. In many ways, James, the letter of James, is a kind of a kind of picture of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached in James chapter, I'm sorry, Mark, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And one of the things that Jesus says about this, this picture of the Christian life that he outlines in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is that we as a people are to be like a city set on a hill. And everything that he goes on then to say is about how we treat one another. And so I think behind James's burden here is that the church, the way we live together, is a kind of evangelism. So it's more than just ethics. It's about the witness of the gospel and how we as a local church actually do the Christian life will either commend the gospel or it will confuse the world about the gospel. And so he asks rhetorically... Here at the end of 16, verse 16, what good is it if, if you just have these good intentions? What good is your faith if it merely stays in your head and doesn't make it out to our hands? If it isn't active, if it doesn't produce some type of obedience and care for people around us. And he's saying that faith that is mere pious words and good intentions is not faith that's any good at all. It seems to be a clear echo of what Jesus is saying at the end of, of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, I believe, is Jesus is, is, is giving us this picture of the final judgment. And he's saying that there's coming a day when really there, there will only be two types of people in the world, the, the sheep and the goats, those who are truly God's sheep and those who are goats who are not God's sheep. And the thing is, is that the goats oftentimes will think that they're sheep, but on the final day, they'll come to find out that they're not sheep. And the goats will say, well, Jesus, didn't, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we? And he says, look, he, Jesus will say to them, look, I was hungry and I came to you in the form of a person that was maybe poor and you gave me nothing to eat. And so th what James is saying here is picking up, I think, on what Jesus is saying in this, this really stinging picture of the judgment on the final day. What, what's in view here is the type of faith 
that will actually endure and save us. So, so what James is telling us is, is very, very serious. And he concludes, he repeats himself again in verse 17. So he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to have your heart made new by God, if that heart, if that faith doesn't actually produce some work, some obedience in your life, it's dead, it's not real, it's not genuine. That's what he's saying. It's a fruitless faith. It's like a, a root that's under the ground, but there's no tree above it. It's a tree that has no leaves, no fruit. Its limbs are leafless. It's a dead tree. Now here in verse 18 and following, he's going he's gonna to bring up a potential objection. So this is, this is a, a common way that Bible writers sort of work out theology as they bring up, they anticipate what they think will be an objection to what they've just said. So he's just said, genuine faith is faith that will bring about obedience in the Christian's life. It will bring about works in some way. Now in verse 18, he brings up an objection. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So what's going on here? I think what's, and this is a, a kind of tricky verse. It's, it's, it's quite discussed and debated through the centuries. But I think the best understanding of what James is saying here is that James is bringing up somebody coming to him with a possible objection saying, yeah, but somebody's going to have, you know, the gift of faith and somebody's just going to be really good at obeying God. You know, this is just kind of two different ways of living the Christian life as if those two things don't necessarily need to go together. Just sort of two options in this smorgasbord or this buffet of the way to live out your Christian life. And then he, he, he then counters that and he says, well, you show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what he's telling him, the, the, his objectioner there is that you, you can't really display your faith apart from your works. It's invisible and it's intangible. And by my works, I'm showing you, in a sense, I'm sort of painting the invisible man in the room, which is my faith, by my works. It's, it's a picture. It puts on display what is inside of a man. And then verse 19, he says, you believe, this is one of the more famous verses in James. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. This is now James speaking to his, his opponent here that he's brought up. You do well, you believe. Okay, you believe, that's great. But even the demons believe and shudder. So he, he, he just brings up this incredible example that just belief, just confession on your lips that doesn't produce obedience isn't the type of faith that saves because even demons in hell believe in a sense. They have a kind of recognition of God. They believe all the facts that we believe, but it hasn't produced obedience in their life. Man, that's a stinging statement. Even the demons believe, but that doesn't do them any good. And in a sense, maybe he's all, he might even be he might even kind of hint at sarcasm, sarcasm there at the end of verse 19. He's saying, at least the demon's faith is producing them shuddering. At least they're scared. And you're not even, your faith is so dead it doesn't even make you, you shudder. What is James saying? He's saying that faith and works are inseparable. They're inseparable. True faith will produce obedience. And to refute this objection, he then gives an, an, an illustration from Scripture. So he says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, 
that faith apart from works is useless. So he's saying, I'm going to show you this. And he brings up two examples. The example of Abraham in the Old Testament and the example of this prostitute named Rahab. An incredible uh, grouping of examples from the Old Testament about faith that is alive. So verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So what's going on here? If you're not familiar with this Old Testament story of Abraham, Abraham is this man that was wandering around in the desert. He was just a pagan idolater. And in Genesis chapter 11, God calls this man, Abram, who later becomes Abraham. He calls him and says, Abram, I'm going to make you my man, and I'm going to make a nation through you. And that nation is going to become Israel. And I'm going to bless you and give you offspring through your wife, Sarah. God tells him that. Well, the story continues. And Abram, Abraham, who is a very old man at this time, continues. His wife is barren, and he's in his 90s. And there's no child. And so they're starting to doubt God. And then finally, in Genesis chapter 21, years after God initially spoke to him, God comes to Abraham, and he gives Abraham and Sarah this promised child. Now, at this time, Abraham was 100 years old, and his wife was in her 90s. And they had, their, they had a child. Their firstborn child, it was impossible. 100-year-old men and 90-year-old ladies are not supposed to have babies. And you know what? Dead hearts that are captured by sin are not supposed to ever trust in Jesus. The point is, is that God waited till they were dried up so that no credit could be given to Abraham and Sarah, so that the fulfillment of the promise would only come through God's power. And so he, he brings this child Isaac through Abraham and Sarah, and then this child grows up. He's probably a young boy at this time, and an angel comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, and he says, after all that they've been through, after the promise has been fulfilled, the angel comes to Abraham and says, now take this boy up to the mountain, lay him on an altar, and sacrifice, take this boy's life. And Abraham, I mean, what, what, wait, this is, the, this is the promised child. I don't under, what, what do you mean? But Abraham sets off to obey God's command. He takes the boy up the mountain, the boy thinking that he's going with daddy to go sacrifice an animal. But all of a sudden, things take a terrible turn, and the boy starts getting tied down on the altar. Can you imagine? The Bible doesn't really give as many details, but that must have been difficult. And Abraham is raising the knife in Genesis chapter 22. And right as he's about to bring down the knife and sacrifice his son Isaac, an angel stops him and provides a ram caught in the thicket. And there we get this interpretation in James that Abraham, his faith that he had all the way back earlier in Genesis, and when he had that faith, 
God justified him and gave him his righteousness. But now James is giving us a further picture of this faith of Abraham. We know now this faith in Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 and 12 and 15 and 17 and other places is now fulfilled. It's now displayed. It's now authenticated in Abraham's obedience to God by even being willing to take the life of the promised son when the angel told him to do so. And so James's point here is saying that Abraham, this man of faith, we know that his faith was authentic and true because it wasn't just in his head, it actually produced obedience, in fact, radical obedience in his life, even to the point of being willing to take his son's life. And even in that taking being willing to take his son's life. We, we see in Hebrews later on, this is just an aside, there's this beautiful description in Hebrews where Abraham, it says about Abraham in Hebrews that he even believed that if he took his son's life that God would be able to raise him up. So it's like even before the resurrection of Jesus, Abraham has a kind of shadow of gospel faith in his life. He believes that God is able to resurrect. And so we see this faith, this faith of Abraham. And so what he concludes then in verse 24 is you see that a person, and this is one of the more controversial passages in James, and we're going to handle it in just a second. You see, this is what James is saying, you see that a person is justified, is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so that's the example of Abraham. In verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So let me just give you a quick summary of what's going on in the story of Rahab. Here's this incredible story that we just heard about in Genesis of Abraham, the father of, of, of the Hebrews, the father of God's people in the Old Testament, this great man of faith. And now he goes to the other extreme and he uses this example of this Gentile woman, non-Jew Rahab, who was a woman of ill repute, a prostitute. So, so what's her story? Well, she is a prostitute in the city of Jericho in, in Joshua chapter 2. And God's people, Moses has died at the end of, of Deuteronomy. And we get into the beginning of the book of Joshua. God's people have not yet entered the promised land. And this new leader, Joshua, has been raised up. And God is going to lead his people across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And he is, Joshua sends out some spies to go spy out the, the promised land, specifically the city of Jericho. And they come upon this, this Gentile woman, Rahab, who should have been against them, but she had heard about the mighty acts of God in redeeming and saving his people from Egypt in the Red Sea, and she was a God-fearer. She had a kind of inkling of faith in her. She believed as she heard the reports about what this true God of Israel had done. And so she hides the spies, the Jewish spies in her house. And when the, 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 other, the enemy comes, you know, she lies to them and then they leave and then she sends the, these Jewish spies on their way. And she had faith in the God that she had heard about and her faith produced an obedience as she protected the Jewish spies as they were spying out the promised land. That's what's happening here in verse 25. And he's holding 
Rahab up as an example of this faith in her heart that produced obedience in her life. And this is, this is just a beautiful picture. Why would James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, choose to use the examples of Abraham and Rahab, the patriarch and the prostitute? I think he's giving us a picture that no matter where you fall on the spectrum of what the world would say as qualified to be the type of person that obeys God, the gospel is for you. So, so not, just, not just those of you that have good spiritual lineage, not just those of you who might be first century Jews who think, you know, he's, he's speaking to me, he's wanting to make sure I fully understand the gospel, but you know, I see myself as being part of this gig because I'm one of God's people. Not just you, he's also speaking to the person who's on the outskirts, the person who has nothing in them and a worldly sense to commend them to God, the person that would seem like the least likely candidate to ever have faith that would save them, that then would produce in them obedience Rahab, the Gentile prostitute. Nobody's beyond God's reach. Nobody is beyond the type of faith that can save them, that can move them to obedience to God, the patriarch and the prostitute. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He dines with tax collectors. And he calls patriarchs and prostitutes. And so he concludes in verse 26. Again, he repeats himself. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And he's saying type of faith that just stays in your head and never actually produces obedience or works, it's lifeless, it's of no use. So what is James saying? I think clearly he's saying that true saving faith, true saving faith will by necessity produce some measure of obedience to God in the life of a Christian. That's what he's saying. That's what James' point is in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So then, the second question is, does James contradict Paul? Is what James has just said contradictory to what Paul has said in his writing, specifically in Galatians and, and Romans? So let me read to you a verse from Romans chapter 3. And then also a verse that we just read from James chapter 2. Put them both up on the screen so that you can see that, that this, this tension that we need to feel. This is what Paul says about justification, about being made right before God. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 28, For we hold that one is justified, made right with God, by faith apart from works of the law. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. But we just read James chapter 2 verse 24 where James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see the supposed contradiction, the tension here? Paul is saying we're justified by faith and not by works. And James is saying that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. So, does James contradict Paul? The answer is a resounding no. And why is it no? Let me give you the answer. James and Paul are preaching the same gospel, 
but they are emphasizing different aspects of it. Paul, in his letter to Galatians, and also primarily much of his letter to Romans, Paul is concerned with legalism. What do I mean by legalism? Paul's concerned with this, with this, this part of the human heart where we are prone to think that we are right with God by what we do. So I take my little area of obedience where I'm basically kind of doing okay. I forget about all the other areas that I'm disobeying God in. And I think about these little areas where I kind of seem to be doing okay. And I use that in my heart as a legalist to, to bring before God as my offering of why he should accept me. That's legalism. It's adding something on to what Jesus has done to the cross to make us right with him. And Paul is making the point that no, nothing that you can do, no work of the dead sinful heart can merit salvation before a holy God. Our righteousness, he's building on this theme in Isaiah, our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. But James, while Paul is concerned with legalism, James is looking at the other side of the Christian life. James is mostly concerned with what we would call easy believism or nominalism. Nominalism meaning a word that we are Christians in name only, a kind of cheap grace. So while Paul is concerned with people thinking they are right by what they do when they bring it to the Lord and they think that that should merit them salvation, James is concerned with the other ditch that we're prone to fall into, which says that, you know what? All I have to do is just kind of sign the fire insurance policy, say yes to Jesus, and I can basically kind of continue to live however I want to live so long as I give mental assent to the proper doctrines. And this is a huge problem, not in just first century Biblical times, but in our hearts too, this is a huge problem in the American church. It's an easy believism where faith is just something we confess, but it has no impact on our lives. And James is attacking that. And he's not contradicting Paul, but he is saying that if you truly have the type of faith that justifies not by your works, but by Christ's work on the cross, then that type of faith will must produce some works in your life. The Protestant reformers put it this way, and I think this little simple little statement kind of gives us this, this blending of what James and Paul is saying. They said in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s that we are justified by faith alone. That, we're, that, that a person is made right we're going to talk about this a little bit more deeply, a little bit more specifically in just a moment. But that a person's dead in their sins. God makes them alive. He gives you faith. And that gift of faith then you exercise, you place it in trust in what Jesus has done in his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. And so by that faith, which is a gift of God, then he, he, we receive right standing, forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of God, the removal of our sins. That, 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 that's what the reformers were saying. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by the faith that God gives us. And so they said, we are saved by faith alone. So here's the statement. We're saved by faith alone, but the type of faith that saves 
is never alone. In other words, it's the type of faith that comes with obedience. Do you get that distinction? We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied. It's always followed by obedience. And so James and Paul together, together, when we bring them together, they paint a balanced and biblical picture of the Christian life. They paint a balanced and biblical picture of the entirety of salvation. We have to have both. If we just have Paul and his doctrine of grace, then it will stay in our heads. And we will be lifeless people that have good doctrine, but no obedience. And if we just have James, we will think that we might be made right by what we do. And so we need James and Paul. And together they present a biblical chain of salvation. And let's dive into that. Let me just give you, just just to help us understand the intricacies of salvation, let me give you this beautiful biblical chain of salvation. There's, I'm going to give you, I think, nine or ten words just all up on the screen at once and just explain it, just explain it quickly. This is what happens to a person. This is the process, the chain of salvation that we see laced all throughout Scripture. This is how the Bible presents what happens to a person when they are, are, are saved by God. First, they are foreknown. We see that in Romans chapter 8, that we are foreknown. God foreloved us. He, he, before time began, he sets his affection on his people. And those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined. In other words, he determined to bring you to himself. He determined, even before time began in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, that you would end up with him forever and ever. That happens before time. Our foreknowing and our predestining is before time. But in time, God actually brings that into being in a person's life by calling them. What does that mean? By through the gospel, God causes the good news of the gospel to hit a human heart. We're dead in our sins, and God sends the good news of the gospel, and it calls us. And the call of the gospel awakens a dead heart. What is the call? It is the presentation. It's the sharing. It's the proclaiming of the good news of the gospel, which is the good news that we are dead in our sins, but Jesus became a man, lived a perfect life, obeyed where we disobeyed, and laid down his life on the cross to absorb the punishment that should have been ours and rose again in victory over it and now commands, calls us to trust in him. But we're dead in our sins. So how can we respond to the call when we're dead? And that leads us into the next Part of the chain is when God calls somebody, the Holy Spirit, according to Titus chapter 3, makes us alive. It regenerates us. It causes us to be born again. This is what's promised in Ezekiel 36. God will take out our heart of stone and he will give us a heart of flesh. And so the call of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 16, the call of the gospel creates what it commands and it regenerates the person that God has foreknown and predestined and it makes them alive. The dead heart 
doesn't bring their works to the table because dead hearts can't work. Dead hearts can't obey. And that dead heart is made alive. It's regenerated. It's born again. And as it's now alive and been made alive and born again and regenerated, it's given the gift of faith. It's given this ability where we were previously unable, now we are able to put our faith in Jesus, to turn, that's repenting, and to put our faith in Jesus. And that the Bible says we're converted when we do that. We turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And in that moment when we do that, we are justified, we're vindicated, we're made right, we're forgiven, we receive the righteousness of God, and we're adopted into God's family. But the faith that we have that we exercise in Jesus is not something we bring to the table. It's something that's given to us in the new birth for those whom God has foreknown and predestined and called and regenerated and they've been made alive. Paul is very concerned with kind of what I've just gone through at this point, foreknowing all the way through the adopting. That's what Paul spends a lot of his time talking about. But now what happens, and all that basically, basically from being called to regenerated to converted to justified adopted, all that happens in an instant. Boom! You're, you're dead, you're made alive, and the first breath of that new life is faith which, by which we're justified and adopted. Now, the rest of the Christian life is sanctification. It's growing into Christ's likeness. It's fighting sin. It's obeying him more and more. It's learning more about his word. It's loving people. It's having our hearts molded and conformed into the image. It's fighting against sin. It's repenting. It's going again daily to God's grace, asking for help. It's growing slowly but surely into Christ's likeness. And then the Bible says we persevere. We make it all the way to the end. He he keeps all of his people. He will he save them. He will not lose them. Our salvation is not ours to lose. First Peter chapter 1 says that our salvation is kept in heaven for us, and he promises that we will one day be glorified. We will be with him forever and ever and ever. And you look at this list. Here's what's going on between James and Paul. James is picking up in sanctification. And basically he's saying, if all these things are true of you, that you've been foreknown, predestined, called, regenerated, converted, justified, adopted, if all that's happened to you in salvation, if, you, if that's true, then sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, the obedience, the work that comes from that will inevitably be part of your life. And what James is saying is where, listen, where there is no sanctification, to some degree, where there is no sanctification, there's no justification, no adoption, no conversion, no regeneration, no calling. That's the burden of James. That's what's going on. And by the way, I don't think Paul and James contradict each other at all, at all. even in their text. We, see, we, we even see it in the text that James says, and just, just one chapter over that we already looked at in verse 18, James says in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. So in other words, God regenerated you. God made you to be born again. It's not something you do. You're not, you're not saved by your works, but a true saved person will obey him to some measure. 
And then in Paul, we see in, in, in Romans 1 and, and then Romans 16, I'll just read Romans 1. Paul, before he even gets into his explanation of justification by faith alone, says that the whole purpose of the gospel that he's preaching is to bring about the type of life that obeys. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. Verse 4, he's speaking about Jesus. I'm picking up mid-sentence, and he says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to this. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? Why has he received this ministry to preach the gospel of being saved by faith alone, Christ alone, through grace alone? Why? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In other words, Paul, at the beginning of his letter, is saying this gospel is so that everything James would say about what obedience looks like may be part of the Christian life. So do James and Paul contradict each other? No. They are preaching the same gospel, but looking at different aspects of it. If we minimize Paul, we can easily slip into legalism. If we minimize James we can easily slip into easy believism. Which are you more prone to? Or maybe you're like me and you're prone to both. You know, I mean, one second, I'm a legalist. I'm like, man, I'm pretty good at that knucklehead. He doesn't know what he's doing. Ah, man, if, if that guy could only be more like me. Just, I'm just a legalist. And then not even 30 minutes later, I'm just easy believe, yeah, just cheap grace. I can basically, you know, God will, God will understand. God will understand, right? I feel like I'm a grandfather clock with an hour that just swings back and forth. Like, you know, I'm either swinging over to this side of being some legalist or I'm swinging over to that side being easy believism. Point is, we need both. We need a faith that obeys. So we conclude with this. How, how does all of this apply to us in our daily lives? I wish I had more time. Let me just give you a few thoughts. How does this apply to me and you? Well, I think we need to ask ourselves in our context, what does useless dead faith look like in our context, in our setting, in my life? I think it looks like somebody who's all doctrine and no devotion. You know, somebody that studies, runs off from Bible study to Bible study, and they know all this good good doctrine, but it hasn't really transformed their lives at all. It hasn't helped them fight sin. They haven't become more humble. They haven't become more compassionate. They don't love other people more. All doctrine, no devotion. Is that you? If that's you, repent right now. Say, Lord, help me. Lord, my faith may not be true. I come to you humbly and ask for you to transform my life. I think it's the type of faith that wants Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And that's not a true saving Jesus. That's a, that Jesus is a figment of the American imagination. Sometimes you'll hear people say that I accepted Jesus as my Savior on this day, but I didn't really accept him as Lord until that day. Uh, I want to be gracious. I think that just comes from a, a misunderstanding of the gospel but really, if you grab a hold of that thinking, it can really undermine the gospel itself and undermine everything that James is saying. It is not possible to accept Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. It doesn't mean that we still won't struggle with disobedience. Of course we will. Are we all perfectly conformed? No, there's a final glorification that's coming. 
But if we get into that mode that we can just sign the insurance policy, and then maybe once we get done with college, and when we get done with this phase in our life, then I'm going to take God serious. We deceive ourselves. What else does useless faith look like? Useless faith look like in my life? It's a type of faith that never inconveniences itself for others. It's just never willing to go out of my way to love others. It's a type of faith that is unaccountable, not really connected to a local church. I see this in our city a lot, and I, and I, and I say this just pastorally because I, I want you to not be one of these type of people. I think there are good reasons sometimes biblically, to move from one church to another. But I think one of the tragedies of the church in Columbus is that many Christians, people that would consider themselves Christians in our city, their Christian life is marked by bouncing from church to church. And that's just not a good way to live the Christian life. It's not. And I think it can make you vulnerable to a kind of dead faith where you shop out your Christianity to the place that's most convenient for you at the time or the place that has the best teaching or the music that you like or the youth group that's best for your kids or whatever, and it never inconveniences you. And before you know it, you can look up and your faith can be a dead faith that's built around your priorities and preferences and conveniences and not actually obeying God in difficult situations. But what does youthful, let's look, let's, let's look on the other side. What does useful faith, what does alive faith look like? Oh, it's humble faith. Yeah, it's faith that grows in the knowledge of the gospel. It's faith that loves truth. It's faith that, that grows in a thirst for the Bible. But as, as we grow in our knowledge, it, it seems to also grow us down into humility. It's a, it's a type of Romans 7 faith that, that is more acquainted with our need for God's grace, our need for the Spirit's work in our lives. The more mature we get, the more we despair of ourselves. The more humble we get, the more desperate we get. Sometimes people are confused by this dynamic in the Christian life. The, the, the more you grow in grace, the more you will despair of yourself. And that's a good thing. It's a type of faith that clings to the gospel. It's a type of faith that grows in its understanding of the Bible. But that growth makes our hearts softer, not harder. It grows in love and compassion for people that are broken, not just people on the other side of the world, not just categories of different people, but actual hard-to-love people that we disagree with, that we live with, that are down the street from us or down the pew from us. It's a type of faith that has its head on a swivel to care for people around us, to encourage them. And maybe we don't have some material good to give them to improve their circumstance, but we all have Christ in us where we can love one another and encourage one another. It's a type of faith that doesn't compromise. Don't hear me say this. It does not compromise on God's standard or truth, but is willing to roll up its sleeve and be compassionate and meet people where they are and love people. I think this church is full of those types of people. And I praise God for that. 
But in a crowd this size, I know there's a whole spectrum. And even in my own life, everything that I've read on both sides here sometimes apply to me. So my prayer as we end this is, Lord, help me. Help me. Help me. Help my faith not be dead. Help my faith be alive. Help my faith be compassionate. Help my faith love people. Help my faith work. Help my faith produce in me obedience. Help my faith help me fight sin. Help my faith make me more like Jesus. Help my faith be more accountable. Help my faith make me more humble, slow to speak and quick to listen, and merciful. Help my faith make me be more like Jesus. Praise God for this text. Let's pray. Father, maybe as we've been going through this, by your sovereign grace, you have illuminated to a heart in here that they do not have true saving faith. Father, if there is somebody, and certainly in this room there are people that don't truly know Jesus. I'm certain of that. If you have made anybody aware of that, Lord, by your grace, if you are calling them, Lord, I pray right now that they wouldn't they wouldn't scurry off and thinking something that they need to do, but that they would finally let go of their works and they would cling to Christ. That the new heart that you are giving them, that they would turn from trusting in themselves. They would turn from dead orthodoxy, dead only believism, and that they would trust in you and know that they need the type of faith, they need the type of authentic faith that James is talking about here. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that needs that new heart, that needs to be brought forth by the word, that needs to be made alive, Lord, do it. Do it, I pray. Save them. Regenerate them. Give them faith so that they can trust in Jesus. And Lord, for those of us that already know Jesus, that are trusting in him, Lord, stir us, convict us. Make us not satisfied with merely good doctrine. Get our heads on a swivel. May our faith be, Lord, we need to obey you. More obedience in our life more compassion, more mercy. Lord, stir this up in my heart, in my life. Stir this up in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. And make this church more like Jesus. You are our only hope. Help us, Lord. Thank you for giving us this text. You're so kind. You remind us of these things. Thank you for this correction of my soul. It's evidence to me, as Hebrews 12 says, that you're treating me as a son. You chasten those whom you love. So convict us, Lord. Convict us, chasten us, discipline us, and make us more like Jesus. And do it all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.